Readings from Ezra, chapter 7, verse 1 to 10. After these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, son of Sariah, son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitab, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Meriah, the son of Zariah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buki, the son of Abishua, the son of Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Some of the Israelites, including priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and temple servants, also came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord, and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. Thanks, Wendy, very much. Do keep that open, and let's pray together, shall we? Father in heaven, we thank you for the rain that falls to water our land and to bring life. And Father, we pray now that you would water the parched ground of our hearts with your word, that you would bring life, Lord, where it's most needed. And we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, as you're probably aware, there's a, there's a big difference between what we need and what we want. Many a, a conversation in the Wells household has gone something like this. Uh, me to Daddy, Daddy, I really need some food. Daddy to Mia, Mia, I don't think you really need food. I think you want food, and I think I know what sort of food you want. And it's always food that comes from the, the corner cabinet in the kitchen where all the sweet treats are stored. You see, here's the point. Mia doesn't need that food to stay alive. It's not a necessity, it's not a need, it is what she wants, it's a desire. In that moment, she wants a tasty treat. You see, there is a big difference between what we actually need, necessities in life, and what we want. And I'm pretty sure it's the same for every generation. In Ezra's day, there were many things that the people of God wanted at this particular point in history. No doubt they wanted political stability. We think our political climate is unstable. It was far worse then. No doubt they wanted freedom from, from, from Persian rule. They wanted to return to the glory days like it was under King David and King Solomon. No doubt they wanted greater security. The, the city had been rebuilt, but the walls still lay in ruins, leaving them open to attack. And of course, the walls were built ten years later under the leadership of Nehemiah. You see, there's lots of things at this moment in history that the people of God would have wanted. But I think there's one thing, as we'll see in the passage today, that they really needed, which is that of reform. They needed their lives to be brought back in line with the word of God. 
You see, chapter 7 begins nearly 60 years have passed since where we were last week. The completion of the building of the temple. The, the sacrifices are still being offered on the altar. The people are carrying out the, the appropriate feasts at the designated times on, on the right days. But spiritually and morally, the people are in a mess. They've digressed a long way from where they were when they returned to the promised land. Hence the need for reform. For those of you who are joining us today, the story so far, just a brief recap for us all. Ezra chapter 1 and 2, God's people return. They return from exile in Babylon to Jerusalem. And we see in chapter 3 and 4 that they return in order to rebuild the temple. Because God's priority in bringing his people home, bringing people to himself, is to restore them to a life of wholehearted worship. The temple is then completed in 515 BC and the people rejoice. But as the days pass by, they lose sight of their saviour and their hearts begin to wander once again from the Lord. Hence the need for reform. And that brings us then nicely to the start of chapter 7. Have a look down at verse 1 with me. After these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Now, if you have a little look in your Bibles at the gap there between the end of chapter 6 and the start of chapter 7, it's a small gap, right? It's just a gap of one line. But that gap there contains 57 years of history. Have a look at the timeline of the, of the Persian kings that you see up there on the screen. We met Cyrus, didn't we, in chapter 1. The Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, allowing God's people to return from Babylon back to Jerusalem. Then comes Cambyses. He doesn't get a mention in the book of Ezra. After him comes Darius, who we looked at last week. He was on the throne in chapter 5 and 6. He's followed by Xerxes. And after Xerxes comes his son, Artaxerxes, who we read about here in verse 1. Now, it's not that nothing happened In that 57-year gap when Xerxes was on the throne, the book of Esther, of course, tells us otherwise. God was quietly at work in the background, preserving his people. But you see, there's no mention of that in Ezra, because that's not Ezra's focus. Plenty was happening back in Persia. God was at work there. We can read that in the book of Esther. But Ezra's concern is what's happening here in Jerusalem. And so as we pick up the story in chapter 7, Artaxerxes has now been on the throne for seven years when Ezra, God's man of reform, returns to Jerusalem. He returns in the second wave of exiles that come back. Now I think when God sends somebody, you see this throughout the Bible, when God sends someone, it tells us a lot about the people whom God has sent them to. If a plumber arrives at your door, it's probably because your pipes need sorting. If an electrician arrives at your door, it's probably because your circuits need sorting. If Ezra arrives at your door, it's probably because your theology needs sorting. God sends Ezra because the people needed to hear the word of God. And there's two things in chapter 7 that we learn about Ezra, this great man of reform who God uses remarkably at this point in history. Firstly, the hand of God is on him. Have a look again at verse 1. 
After these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, and of course that lineage continues down to verse 5, the son of Abishua, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra came up from Babylon. Just in case we're in any doubt of which Ezra we're talking about, this is the Ezra. The Ezra whose lineage and heritage goes all the way back to Aaron, who of course himself was the brother of Moses. This Ezra came up from Babylon, verse 6. He was a teacher, well versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel had given. The king had granted him everything he asked. Why? For the hand of the Lord was on him. It's an expression that comes up six times in these two chapters. The hand of the Lord was on him. And it shouldn't surprise us, right, if you've been with us for the last three weeks, because we see the sovereign hand of God at work all the time through the book of Ezra in the lives of these Persian kings and indeed in the hearts of his people. But here it feels a little bit more intimate. Not only is God's sovereign hand overseeing what's going on, God's hand is resting on This faithful servant. We see the same thing, look, in verse 8 and 9. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He'd begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month. And he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month for the gracious hand of God was on him. That's a journey of approximately 900 miles, which he did in just under four months. And in most circumstances, it would have been a journey fraught with danger, especially considering the amount of wealth they were carrying that you read about in verse 15 and 16. But as we know, Ezra arrived safely in Jerusalem. Why? For the gracious hand of his God was on him. Flip forward to the end of chapter 8. You see the same thing there, verse 31 and 32. On the twelfth day of the first month, We set out from the Ahava Canal to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he protected us from our enemies and bandits along the way. Ezra arrived safely in Jerusalem because the gracious hand of God was on him. But you see, there's another why question we must ask. Why was the gracious hand of God resting on Ezra? Why was God so determined to preserve Ezra and bring him safely to Jerusalem? Well, the answer is back there in chapter 7, verse 6, because through him, through this man, God would bring great reform to his people. And that brings us to our second point. The hand of God was on him because the word of God was in him. Have a look again at verse 6. This Ezra came up from Babylon. He was what? He was a teacher. Well versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. That little phrase there, well versed, in verse 6, literally means rapid. He was a teacher rapid in the law of Moses. If you asked Ezra a question, he'd have you an answer just like that. Straight away. From the law. Because he knew the law of the Lord inside out. Or in our language, this man knew his way around the Bible. And you can see exactly why. Look in verse 10. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study 
and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. Three things we notice here about Ezra. Firstly, he loved the word. He loved the word and he was devoted to the word. And that's why he studied it. That's why he poured over it. That's why he gave himself to the word. That's why his quiet time in the morning was more than a token gesture. Ezra loved the word of God. But he also lived the word of God. Do you see that in verse 10? For Ezra had devoted himself not only to the study of God's word, not just to understanding God's word, but to the observance of the law of the Lord. Ezra lived what he loved. He wasn't just a hearer. Didn't just listen to what God was saying. He was a doer of God's word, which of course is an attitude which would have pleased the Lord Jesus greatly, isn't it? Do you remember the words of Jesus at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7? Those precious words, you'll know it now with a picture up on the screen. This is what our Lord Jesus says. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, streams rose and the winds blew and beat hard against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, streams rose, winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. You see, it is not enough to study the word of God. It's not enough to just understand the word of God without putting the word of God into practice. There's plenty of foolish people out there who do that. And what they have built will not stand on that final day when the Lord comes back in judgment. The wise man, says Jesus, is one who hears, who listens, who understands the word of God. And by the grace of God puts it into practice. That's why Ezra, in Jesus' language, is in the category of a wise man. Because he devoted himself not only to the study of God's word, but to the observance of it as well. Ezra loved the word, Ezra lived the word, and Ezra taught the word. Can you see that again in verse 10? He lived what he studied, and he taught what he lived. Can you see that there? He lived what he studied, and he taught what he lived. And the order is absolutely crucial. We need to understand what the God of heaven is saying to us. And by the grace of God, we need to put it into practice, and only then are we in a place to teach it to other people. We cannot teach what we do not live, because if we do, our words will be void of power. It's what the Bible calls hypocrisy. We teach one thing, but we live contrary to what we are teaching. And you know what? People see straight through it. And children are actually probably the best at this. They're some of the best hypocrisy spotters out there. Do you know what? We cannot expect our children to be excited about coming to church if they don't see a passion in us on a Sunday morning. To be with the people of God. We cannot expect our children to be excited meeting God's people if we're not excited about meeting God's people. 
We cannot expect our children to love the word of God if we do not love the word of God. If our children do not see us with our noses in the Bible, we cannot expect our children to love the word of God. We cannot expect our children to bow the knee and pray to God Almighty if they do not see us drop our knee before our Father in heaven and cry out with absolute dependence on him. Do our children, do each other, do our next generation see these things in the people of God? Teaching our children about the joy of church, about the wonder of God's word and about the privilege of prayer will only be fruitful if they see us living those things out ourselves. And you know what? It's one of the reasons why the teaching of Jesus was so powerful. Because he lived in line with every single word he taught. There was not one glimmer of hypocrisy in the life of Christ. His his living and his teaching complemented each other perfectly. And that's why in many ways Ezra here is a type of Christ. He's a shadow of the one to come. Ezra studied the law, observed the law and taught the law. The Lord Jesus understood the law perfectly. Every single detail of what God had to say. Jesus obeyed the law completely. He delighted in doing his father's will. The only sinless being to ever exist. And Jesus taught the law majestically as one who had supreme authority. See, it's easy, isn't it, to read a story like the one before us in Ezra chapter 7. And think to ourselves, wouldn't it be great if we had an Ezra today? Wouldn't it be great if God sent someone like Ezra to preach and bring reform to the church and to this land? Well, here's the truth. One far greater than Ezra is already here in our midst. And his name is Jesus Christ. If we want to see reformation in our church, in our own hearts and lives, if we want to see reformation and revival in this land... If we want to see the global church united to the truth, realigned to the word of God, then we need to listen to Jesus. This isn't just a tasty treat. It's not just something we should want, a a nice extra thing in life. This is a necessity. You need to hear the words of Jesus Christ. And by the grace of God, we need to respond to them. Anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, says Jesus is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And so as we consider Ezra the man, we see that the hand of God was on him, and we see that the word of God was in him. But before we finish, I want us to think briefly, not just about Ezra the man, but about Ezra the mission. We've met the man, hopefully you understand a bit about Ezra now, but what about his mission? Well, the second half of Ezra chapter 7 from verse 11 onwards is a, is a copy of another letter from another king, this time King Artaxerxes. And it bears remarkable similarities with the letters that we've, we've seen already in the book of Ezra that have come before. Once again, God is moving in the heart of another Persian king, enabling his sovereign purposes to unfold. And as Ezra begins to understand this, again, it moves him to a posture of prayer. Can you see that in verse 27 and 28? 
This is actually the first time we hear Ezra speak in the book. And it's a prayer. And it's a recognition of praise to God. Praise be to the Lord, says Ezra. The God of our ancestors who has put it into the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way. And who's extended his good favor to me before the king and his advisors and all the king's powerful officials. Because the hand of the Lord, my God, was on me, I took courage and gathered leaders from Israel to go up with me. And that's exactly what we read. If you read through chapter 8, when you go back, Ezra gathers the leaders together. And after a four-month journey, he arrives safely in Jerusalem to begin his God-given mission. But there's one phrase I want us to think about back in chapter 7, verse 14, because it captures the very heart of Ezra's God-given mission. Verse 14, chapter 7, you are sent by the king and his seven advisers to inquire about Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hand. Ezra sent, off he goes with the law of the Lord in his hand, a scroll containing the precious words of God. But as we know, it's not just in his hand, it's in his head, it's in his heart. The law of the Lord was in him. But you see what he does when he arrives in Jerusalem with the word of God in his head and in his heart. He inquires of the people with regard to the law. He asks them questions to find out how they're doing, to find out how they're living, to see if their lives are indeed holy and devoted to God. And if they're not, he applies the word of God to their lives to bring about lasting change and reform in the hearts of God's people. And as we consider that principle of asking people questions of their life and applying the word of God to people's lives, there's two questions that I want to finish with by way of application. And the first question is this, do you inquire of other people? Do you ask questions of people's life that make them consider their conduct and their behavior and their attitudes? Do you probe into areas of people's life where it's actually hard to go? Do you love people enough to do that? And if you see within the life of a brother or a sister in Christ, if you see something that is not in line with the word of God, will you speak the truth of God into their lives? So by the grace of God, we might see lasting change and reform. We might see God do beautiful things in the lives of those that we love. But of course, there's another question we must ask ourselves as well, isn't there? Do you allow others to inquire of you? Are you vulnerable in your relationships? Are you open to change? Are you willing to embrace the loving correction of others? Do you invite people to speak truth into your life? So that by the grace of God, we might see beautiful, lasting things happening in our own hearts as well. We might see God reform our hearts and our lives. Paul Tripp, in one of his books, speaks about how distorted our image of self is. He says it's like looking in one of those carnival mirrors. When we look at ourselves and we're all squashed or we're long and elongated, you see, here's the point. Because of pride, we do not see ourselves as we are. 
We need someone outside of ourselves who loves us enough to identify things in our life that are not right. We need people to inquire of us and to bring the word of God to bear upon our lives just as Ezra did because we too need to be reformed. And so as we finish this morning, I want to leave you with one challenge, which is this. Get yourself in a home group. Or if that's not logistically possible for whatever reason, make sure that you are meeting intentionally with someone who will inquire of you. You see, our natural instinct is to hide, is it not, from these things when people push us in areas of our life. And you know what? In a church this size, it's very easy to hide. To sit there at the back maybe and to slip out for your cup of tea and say a quick hello and goodbye on the door and that's it and you're gone. Without someone looking you in the eye and asking you the questions that need to be asked. Well, say, how's your heart this week? How's your heart? Well, see, what about those battles against sin? By the grace of God, are you winning in those areas of your life? Wellesley, how's your prayer life? Don't give me a pat answer, Wellesley. Don't give me, yeah, it's okay. How's your prayer life, Wellesley? Really? Talk to me. How is your prayer life? Wellesley, what about your family you're witnessing to? Mum and dad? Sister and family? You're giving up? You're praying for them? You send them a letter or a book or a little clip on YouTube that explains something of the gospel. Well, see, when was the last time you spoke to someone in this village about Jesus who doesn't know Jesus? What's your answer, Wellesley? Don't hide. I need people like you to ask me these questions. And you know what? I think you need somebody to ask you those same questions as well. And so my challenge to you this morning is this, make sure above everything else, I don't know that's the right phrase, but make sure it's right near the top of your priority list that you are building friendships. You are investing in people who will inquire of you. Otherwise, like the nation of Israel, during that 57-year gap in the book of Ezra, we too will slide into a state of godless disrepair. There is a vast difference between what we need and what we want. Lots of things we want in life, right? You can list them now. Lots of things I want to do. Lots of places I want to go to. Lots of things I want to experience. There are only a few things in life that you really need. And I hope you've seen this morning from the book of Ezra, chapter 7 and chapter 8, that one of those things that you need most in your life is the reforming work of God. We need people in our life who will inquire of us, however difficult that is. We need people in our life who will speak the truth in love, however difficult that is. And we need people that will stand with us and pray for reform in our lives because our hearts remain wayward if they go left unchecked. And as God reforms us, as a people of God, we re-emerge into this world to live lives that display his glory and that attract this watching world because they will see something in the people of God that they will see nowhere else at all. But it begins with me and you taking the call seriously 
to open up our lives to one another, to inquire of each other, and to bring the word of God to bear that every single dimension of our life will be brought back in line with the word of God. And when that happens, we will see signs of revival in this world and in our communities. So why don't I pray for us? I'll give us a moment just to reflect in our own hearts as you think about the reforming work of God and where it's most needed, and then I'll pray for us. Uh, before we sing to close. Father in heaven, we thank you for your faithful servant, Ezra. Thank you that your hand was upon him. Thank you that your word was in him. And thank you that you used that man in remarkable ways, really, to reform a nation that was in great need of reform. And as we think about his life and the mere shadow it is of the life of Christ... Lord, we thank you for his life, for his teaching. Thank you for his spirit that lives within us as believers. Father, how we pray that we would be a church that is vulnerable with one another, open with one another, honest with one another, a church which loves each other enough to inquire, to ask those difficult questions of life and faith and desire and attitude and behavior. And Lord, that we too would be people who speak the truth into the lives of one another. That we wouldn't only study your word and know it. Lord, help us to live it out in the week ahead. And help us to teach it to others. Lord, that others might taste and see in your word that you are indeed good. So Lord, help us in this. Help us to have those conversations even today as we break for tea and coffee. Help us to look our brothers and sisters in the eye and ask each other questions that we desperately need to hear as together we seek to walk in ways that are pleasing to you and bring great glory to your name. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Well, the band are going to come back up if we want to see reform in our own hearts and lives. If we want to see reform in the life of the church, then it's not going to happen in our own strength. It is through Christ in me. And so we conclude our time this morning by singing that great song, Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me. Reform will happen when we collapse our confidence into our great Saviour and let him work in and through his people. So let's stand together, shall we, as we we sing this song to conclude.